Just a few moments ago, as our prayer response, we lifted our voices together and we prayed as our Lord taught us to pray. And as we prayed the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, we made the statement or we made that request, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is our prayer. This is one of our foundational prayers throughout our lives that God's kingdom would be present in us and through us in the actual real world we inhabit today. And yet as we make that statement or as we make that request, we also always understand that that in the here and now is going to be flawed and it's going to be incomplete because we recognize that not everybody is working in concert with God's will and sometimes we aren't even working in concert with God's will. Maybe a lot of times we aren't working in concert with God's will. That's something we are wrestling with. We are trying to grow in our faithfulness to God's kingdom and his will. But as we look around our world, a lot of times it doesn't look like his will is being done at all. You know, a couple of months ago, we worked through a couple of psalms that took our minds to the beauty and the goodness of the created order in which and through which we see the beauty and splendor of our creator God. So this place that we call home is an incredible gift to us to be embraced, to be cared for, to be stewarded, and even enjoyed. But sometimes the beauty and goodness of this world stands in contrast to or is at the very least obscured by the tremendous evil that we also see take place in that same world on nearly a daily basis. Which raises the question, if this is a good and beautiful place God created, where does all of this evil come from? Is God then the source of the evil too, or is it the devil or some other malevolent cosmic force? What's going on? These are questions that we will probably all wrestle with at various times in our lives, but to begin getting at a faithful answer to some of those questions as Christians, I think we need to at least begin approaching those questions through the lens of what Jesus teaches us. So usually when faced with questions like these, the typical response is either, well, it's God's fault, he's responsible, I mean, he created the system in which the evil occurs, so he has to be responsible for the evil that takes place in his system. So it's either God's fault or it's their fault. Whoever they are, it's my enemy, my ideological other. They are responsible for the condition. They are responsible for the evil that takes place in this world. But this morning as we read the beginning of Mark chapter 7, we're actually going to spend the next several weeks working through this chapter in Mark. But in the section we read today, we find that Jesus suggests that maybe in attempting to answer some of these questions, we look somewhere else. We don't look at them. We look somewhere else. So let's see what Jesus has to say. We'll begin reading at the beginning of the chapter, Mark 7 verse 1, where we read this. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So we'll 
pause there. Apparently, a group of scribes had arrived from Jerusalem to investigate the situation. What's going on with this man named Jesus? Why is he gaining so much popularity and influence among the people? And so the scribes get together with the Pharisees and they approach Jesus. So obviously, we are being set up for a conflict that is going to occur between Jesus on one hand and the scribes and the Pharisees on the other hand. I personally sort of like to picture the scribes and the Pharisees approaching Jesus West Side Story style, you know, snapping their fingers as they're making their way. Maybe I should just continue this, coordinate the cadence of my words with the snap of my finger. Except I have terrible rhythm, so it wouldn't work for very long. I don't know what's getting into me. Let's continue. Mark then gives the audience. So many believe this is a primarily Gentile audience, many of whom would have been unfamiliar with some of the Jewish customs at work in the day. And so Mark gives them this parenthetical comment in verses 3 and 4 to explain why what the disciples were guilty of was such a big deal here. So we read that in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. So Mark explains, look, a couple of decades ago, a tradition of the elders existed to help in interpret and provide some points of application for the Mosaic law for serious Jews to follow. So some of these ceremonial rituals that we are reading about were not necessarily a part of the law that was given to Moses, but were traditions that developed later in an attempt to help the people keep the law of Moses. And so these rituals and ceremonies, some that were a part of the law, some that were added on to the law later as traditions to be followed, either way, they were, at least in part, intended to be reminders for the people that not everything was as it should be. So this is one of the things that the prayer that we prayed, the Lord's Prayer, reminds us of, that that request we make, your kingdom come, your will be done, is a recognition that not everything is as it should be. So these were reminders of that fact. So participate in these rituals before you eat. Don't eat these foods. Eat in these particular ways, etc., etc. And those traditions were a reminder. We live in a world that is impacted by sin. Everything is not as it should be. And this reminds us of that. So wash properly. Eat according to these specific stipulations. Wash all of the utensils that are used in food prep and in the dining experience. Now, to be honest with you, as a bit of a clean freak, I'm actually on board with some of these stipulations, you know? Wash your hands before you eat, for goodness sake. When I worked as a tour director in Alaska, I would travel with 40 to 50 people for six to 12 days. A lot of times, a lot of our time was spent on a motor coach, and at each dining stop we made during a particular day, I would get off the coach and stand at the bottom of the stairs with a giant bottle of hand sanitizer, and I would not let the guests pass me until they allowed me to put a generous squirt 
in their hand. You will wash your hands. We're not spreading your sickness throughout our whole group. It's going to lead to a miserable experience. So I'm on board with some of this. One of the problems here, though, was that the Pharisees, to a large degree, focused almost entirely on some of these rituals, thinking that these practices summed up the entire spiritual work of God's people. So if we do these things, our spiritual work is finished. Let's read in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So for the Pharisees and scribes, in verse 5, what is of utmost importance? It's the tradition of the elders. So they're saying, Jesus, if you are a religious man, and if you are a good rabbi for your disciples, these ragamuffins that can't seem to walk in line, why don't you help get them in line? Do you realize how they are behaving? Pull them together. So for the scribes and the Pharisees, it appears as though the authority of their scriptures was reduced and the authority of the tradition of the elders was elevated to the point that they were at the very least equal. And maybe the tradition of the elders was actually just beginning to surpass the authority of scripture. I think that argument could be made. Now, this has been a tendency that has been a part of religious movements for a very long time. We see it in this story. It occurred in the first century, and I think we could probably all come up with examples of ways in which this takes place today, where traditions that we participate in become the bedrock for our understanding of what truth is. Now, what I'm not interested in doing this morning is interpreting the teaching of Jesus in this story as an outright denunciation of tradition. I don't think that's what's taking place. And and I think in the climate that we find ourselves in, that is what we often resort to. Well, Jesus hated tradition, especially religious tradition. So anything that smacks of tradition or ritual is discarded. It's stuffy, it's old-fashioned, it's religious, and it may even be harmful to our spiritual health. So as Christians, we need to do away with all of that suffocating, starchy ritual and pursue our own free spirituality. I don't think that's where this text takes us. I don't think Jesus hated tradition. Jesus wasn't anti-religion. Yes, he was opposed to a lot that religious elite had turned Jewish spirituality into, but he's not anti-religion. The tradition itself that the people were engaged in wasn't necessarily the problem because there can be a lot of bad in that tradition or that comes from the tradition, but there can also be a lot of good. And it can be necessary in our spiritual development. And so as followers of Jesus, I don't think it's necessarily wise for us to cut all of that out under the guise of pursuing relationship over religion. That's language that we will often hear used, but I think it's an unnecessary bifurcation. Because we understand that even if we do away with these traditions over here, we inevitably pick up this new set of traditions over here, right? Even if we don't refer to them as tradition, that's what they become. So tradition, ritual, ceremony, that's not the problem that Jesus is getting at. Let's continue reading in verse 6. And he said to them, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So again, the problem isn't necessarily tradition. Tradition can be good and even essential in the development of Christian character and a heart that is in tune with God. The problem isn't tradition, but one of the problems is that tradition over time often loses meaning. Do you know what I'm talking about? We, we can go through a lot of the religious motions, and over time we might end up worshiping in vain, even though we are engaged in those spiritual practices because those motions maybe aren't impacting us from the inside out. We, we could even think about some of the, the traditions that we engage in here at Solid Rock on a regular basis. Some of those embodied practices that we participate in. For instance, lighting candles around the room in prayer as a visible symbol and reminder that Christ is shining his light into the darkness of the situation we are praying about. Or maybe we could think about something as simple as the songs that we sing together or the prayers that we recite or raising our hands or posturing our body in some way as we posture our hearts. Some of those traditions that we engage in aren't intrinsically valuable. However, what they represent, where they take our minds and our hearts, is absolutely meaningful in our spiritual development. So those traditions, those rituals and ceremonies can be really important until the traditions themselves become the object of our focus. Until we require participation or until we have serious doubts about our ability to commune with God without those traditions. Or maybe they are valuable as practices until we engage in the physical acts but have no connection to God in our spirit. So we do all of these things, but we don't do them as a path into deeper intimacy and faith, but simply as items that we can check off of a list and go about the rest of our lives. And if that's what those spiritual practices become, at that point, as Jesus says in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So it's not the tradition that is the problem. It's that the people were beginning to abandon God in favor of the tradition. So the rituals could be meaningful if they were approached in an appropriate way with humility. Let's continue reading in verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. It sounds like a compliment at the beginning, right? It's not. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So, so Corban was this Hebrew concept of, 
almost like a hyper-piousness, the complete dedication of the self to God. It, it could be a reference specifically to finances that were given over or dedicated to God, or it could be a representation of an entire life that is lived with this sense of complete abandonment. I'm going to move away and pursue God with everything that I am. All of my time is going to be spent in prayer. I'm going to move out of the house. I'm no longer going to help my mother or father. I'm going to move away from the community, and I'm going to devote myself to continual prayer. I'm going to develop my personal, my spiritual life above all else because that is what really matters. And Jesus seems to say here that in the end, even that attempt to look really pious or holy, or maybe it's actually an attempt to become really pious and holy, but in the end, it could actually lead you away from a position of love. So those practices that are good and spiritual and meaningful also have the ability to take us away from true holiness and piety. I mean, we could think about it in this way. Maybe this mental exercise would be helpful for putting some flesh on this idea. We, we could ask the question, who is more holy or spiritual? The, the person that prays for a half an hour or an hour every morning and then goes about their lives, or the one who moves off into a monastery and spends all of their time praying and developing the spiritual life. I mean, on the outside, it's the one who prays all day every day. They have to be the one who is more spiritual, right? But what we find Jesus suggesting here that the external, what we are doing is not the only reality at work. So who is more pious? The one who prays for a half an hour? The one who moves off and prays all day? Or the one who prays in the morning and then goes out and loves well? What's going on on the outside is not necessarily an indication of the interior life. But let's continue reading to further flesh this out. Verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean, Mark tells us. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So Jesus ups the ante a little bit here. He begins by challenging the tradition of the elders, hand washing and things like that. But now he goes after one of the biggest sticking points in the Jewish law as it relates to dietary restrictions. And he does so by declaring all foods clean. It isn't what you consume 
that defiles a person, because not to be too crass, but that's just going to be expelled. It's not what you consume, but it's what comes out of you that defiles a person, because what comes out of you reveals what's really in there. Beyond the facade, beyond those external practices that we engage in and those veils that we wear, what comes out reveals what's really going on. We see something similar taking place in that story that's told back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where David is selected from among Jesse's sons as the one who would eventually succeed Saul. This is a part of David's life that we didn't cover over the past couple of months as we've looked at some of those high and low points from his life. Um, But if you remember that story, one by one, Jesse's sons are presented to Samuel, and what is Samuel's response? Just, no, no, keep them coming. It's not that one. Are there any other sons? And the response is, well, not really. I mean, technically there is, but... It's just David, and he's off in the, the pasture. He's the youngest. He's, he's weak, and he's small. He's actually not even really in consideration for this appointment, so we're just going to move on. And what, what do we hear from the Lord speaking to Samuel? The Lord says, Samuel, don't, don't look at the stature and the strength of all of these other sons, because I'm looking, I'm interested in the strength of a different kind. And then the word from the Lord that we hear is, man looks at the outward appearance but God looks at the condition of the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And as Christians, we believe that the same God who spoke those words to Samuel is the God who is fully represented in the person of Jesus Christ. And we find that characteristic at work in the life and ministry of Jesus as well, because he sees situations and he sees people differently than the rest of the general public. We're going to find an example of this in the story that we read next week out of Mark chapter 7. But Jesus, too, sees what's going on inside people, things that the rest of us are often blinded to. And I think in understanding this, we begin to see one of the great challenges that accompanies some of these rituals and traditions that we participate in. And that is that it can become virtually indiscernible if somebody is just going through the motions, spiritual practices, or if somebody is living out of the reality of their heart. And so those ceremonies and those traditions and rituals can become a means of hiding what is actually occurring in our hearts. We can wash the outside. We can eat the right foods, wash our hands. We can clean up the exterior And in so doing, we can fool everybody else into thinking that we are actually really, really spiritual because the inside doesn't matter all that much because nobody sees that. Jesus says, no, actually, that's what we're really interested in. And some of those external practices are aimed at fixing what's going on on the inside. Maybe you had this experience growing up when you were instructed to clean your bedroom if you were having house guests. And your method of cleaning your room was just to sort of bulldoze everything under the bed? Anybody? That was my method at times. And, you know, and so to the, and you pulled the, the blanket down a little bit over the bed to further conceal. And 
To, to the casual obser uh, observation, I mean, it looks like the room is really clean and tidy, but the junk is still all there. It's just hidden. I think what Jesus is, one of the things Jesus is getting at is that that same thing can happen on a spiritual level for all of us. So the external actions aren't the problem that Jesus is attacking. It's the obsession with the external practices. That, that's the problem. Thinking that those external actions are the end-all, be-all of our spiritual lives, that's the issue here. And that is when religion becomes unhealthy. Christianity, on the other hand, says we're going to focus on a different problem, which is the true problem. We're, we're going to focus on the condition of the heart. Because Jesus says evil comes from in here. So, so the evil that we see in the world, it's, it's not God. It's not even them. Well, it may be them, but Jesus says that's not our focus. Our focus is the evil that is in our own hearts. So look at yourself. The evil is in here, and it's in here to a large degree because we haven't been properly formed. What we need that complete transformation from the inside out. And so it's possible, we, we could reduce this conversation to a discussion about doctrines like original sin or the depravity of the human heart, but I think there's more going on in this story. And I think maybe it'd be more helpful if we focus on the fact that our hearts are being formed. The evil that is in here is because our hearts have been shaped in that way. Every one of us, we are being shaped every day by a myriad of practices we engage in. The troubling thing, though, is that sometimes we don't recognize the transforming power of those practices and the power they have on us. And so we are engaged in formation, but we are engaged in passive formation. We don't recognize that it's occurring. And when we don't recognize that we are being shaped, we end up being formed into a person that we're not hoping to become. So Christian discipleship is the process of engaging in intentional formation where we allow Jesus to shape our evil hearts through some of these external practices, through prayer and meditation and silence, through these various disciplines and postures of the body and the heart. And through those disciplines, we change the desires of our heart. So if you were with us last week, this is the question we ended with. What is it that you truly desire? So we were reading that story about Solomon, who's sort of given this open-ended question, what, what do you want? And whatever you ask for, it is going to be granted. And I suggested that maybe we should ask ourselves the same question, not because we view God as a genie that is going to spit out whatever we want, but I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it that we truly desire in life because what we truly desire in the end shapes who we become? In his book, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith argues that our deepest desires are manifested in our daily lives and habits. He said this is because our action our doing bubbles up from our loves, which, as we've observed, are habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. 
I might be learning to love a telos that I'm not even aware of and that nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. He goes on to say that learning to love God takes practice. Learning to love God takes practice. Our desires have to change. Eradicating the evil in our hearts, that takes work and practice. It doesn't just happen. And worship, what we do here, that gives us that practice. Now, religion that is unhealthy starts and ends with those things like prayer, worship, meditation, silence, the giving of alms. We could go down the list. But when we stop there with the external actions, our hearts may never be formed into the character of Christ, not because those practices are bad, but because the tradition has become a God for us, so to speak, rather than a means to know God and to become more like him. So I don't think our takeaway from this story is, well, tradition is bad. So anything that smacks of tradition is stuffy religiosity that must be rejected. Now, Christian faith views spiritual disciplines and these practices of worship not not as a means of cleaning the outside so that it looks presentable for others, but as a means of coming into alignment with Christ and allowing our evil hearts, that's where Jesus says the evil comes from, from in here and in these spiritual practices, we allow our evil hearts that, that are formed and shaped by so many competing voices. In worship, we allow Christ to reform us to shape us into his image. And this is what we do each week, week after week. In the prayers that we pray, the songs we sing together, we're being shaped. Maybe it doesn't seem like that, but our hearts and our minds are slowly, over time, being shaped. We are being formed as we hear the scriptures read. We are being formed as we celebrate the Eucharist week after week. We are being shaped by these practices. I want to read one more paragraph from what Smith says in that book. He says, worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is, that, is, it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Kevin, if you want to come up. We are going to stand together. You can stand if you want. <laughs> And we are going to continue, as we've been doing all morning, we're going to continue in some of these practices. And I would encourage you, as we sing together today, to think of the songs we're singing, the prayers that we're praying in that light. These practices that seem routine, that maybe become redundant, as we pray the Lord's Prayer once again, it, it can easily slip into just this tradition that we do as an item to check off a list. But... I would encourage you to approach it through this lens where these things we are doing are slowly over time shaping us.
And we need to be shaped. We need to be formed. Jesus says in this text that the evil is in you. It's not out there. It's in your heart. It's in my heart. But as we sing together this morning, I want you to hear this good news that Jesus can, Jesus can and will, Jesus is changing our hearts to look more like his. Jesus is changing us. This is the good news this morning. Let's sing together. Father, we thank you for our scriptures through which we find a picture of Jesus Christ, the word of God, who gives light to the world. Jesus, we are drawn to you this morning. And as we posture ourselves before you, we ask that you would continue to shape us, continue to form our desires, change our hearts. Amen.